So if you'll open your Bibles this morning again to the Gospel of John. We're continuing this morning in chapter 7. And these verses that we're looking at this, this week have me wondering, how good are you when it comes to discernment? You're a pretty discerning person. Are you, are you able to perceive things as they actually are? Do you make good judgments? The ability to, to see things, to, the ability to make appropriate judgments about those things is so important. And it includes, certainly, determining right from wrong, but it goes far beyond that, too. Uh, to be skilled in discernment means you cannot just determine right from wrong, you can determine good from best. Right? If you've got a whole bunch of options and you say, well, gosh, these all look okay to me or good to me, but, but which is the best? It's not easy. I wonder if you're like... If you're like me, and when you have realized, oh, maybe there was a little lapse in discernment here, but we're looking at it in hindsight, we're thinking, it's so obvious now. Why couldn't I see that then? That's what's going on in today's passage, I think. Discernment is is key here in these verses in John 7. And to say that these folks were struggling with discernment is an understatement. And I want us to look carefully at these verses, because in them, Jesus gives us what are some important keys to discernment. They'll help with our discernment. So let me ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word, John 7, verses 14 through 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right Judgment. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word of God. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, we, we lack discernment. Uh, we, we struggle with it. We, 
We struggle to see things the way they really are. We struggle to see things the way that you see them. We even struggle to see the gospel in the way that you would have us to see it. And so, would you come now? You have said elsewhere in your word that if we lack wisdom and admit that to you, that you generously give. And so that's what we need now, Lord. We need your wisdom. We need your understanding, your ability to help us discern, to see Jesus clearly as he's here in these verses, to see the gospel clearly, to see ourselves clearly. Lord, this morning, would you grant clear sight, not based on appearances, but based on the way things really are, We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Judge with right judgment. That's discernment. Three areas for us to focus on this morning. You'll see an outline in your worship folder if that helps you follow along. First thing we need to do is seek some perspective. That is, what's the... What's the context that we're in in these verses? What is the lack of discernment that we're dealing with? Second thing, we're going to look at some priorities that I think will help us with our discernment. And then finally, and very briefly at the end, uh, an important promise for us to remember in light of this. So first, perspective. Two weeks ago, we began chapter 7 with Jesus' little brothers trying to get him to go up to Jerusalem to this feast that's at hand, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. They wanted him to go up so that he could show himself to the world. Go show them what you got, Jesus. Make a name for yourself and see if you can stem the loss of followers that's been plaguing you lately. See if you can get this thing turned around, Jesus. And so, of course, those little brothers of Jesus showed a big lack of discernment. (laughs) in this request that they made of their big brother. Jesus said, no, I'm not going up to the feast, at least not right now, not in the way that you want me to go up. He waits until things are well underway. Because had he arrived right at the start of the feast with all the fanfare, with the red carpet appearance, if you will, that might have become the premature triumphal entry. And it wasn't time for that yet. And so he waits, and he goes up sometime in the middle. Of course, it was just the right time. And he begins to teach, likely in the outer courts of the temple. And when Jesus begins teaching, jaws are dropping all over the place. The folks in the temple heard him, and they marveled. They couldn't believe him. How in the world? Now, I wish that John had recorded for us some of the content. What was it that he was saying? But that's not his focus. Whatever it was Jesus was teaching, it was was good. It grabbed their attention. It, It must have demonstrated a keen understanding of the scriptures. It must have been compelling in in its content and its delivery. And yet, the folks there hearing what he said still weren't connecting the dots. They asked this question in verse 15. He's got learning. 
But he hasn't studied. How can this be? We don't understand. Because you see, in that day, the way things typically worked is rabbis or, or, or teachers, they would go to big rabbi schools. They would go to big centers of rabbinical study. And you would learn from an older, more experienced rabbi. That's how it worked. You learned the content. You learned the methodology. And then you would be known as Rabbi so-and-so who studied under Rabbi so-and-so who studied under Rabbi so And there's this long genealogy, if you will, of, of rabbinical tradition and standards and, and your credentials, right? You could trace it back. That's your pedigree. That's how you were seen as, as legitimate. And so these folks in the temple that day, they cannot figure this out because Jesus doesn't have such a pedigree of having studied under Rabbi so-and-so. And it doesn't make sense to them. And what a lack of understanding and discernment this is on their part. Because this is one of those cases. We're looking back, y'all, this should have been obvious. right? There was a very obvious answer to their question and they just couldn't see it. They could not discern this obvious answer that, oh, perhaps this man really is who he has been saying he is. Later, we're going to get to verse 21, and Jesus talks about having done one work. And we know Jesus actually did a lot more than one work, but he's referring there to the last thing he did when he was in Jerusalem. He's back in Jerusalem. He's been in Galilee. The last thing he did when he was in Jerusalem was back in chapter 5 when he healed the man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years, the one lying there at the edge of the waters of that pool. And after he does that and gets into some hot water of his own for doing that, he explains very clearly in no uncertain terms who he is. Turn back a page or two to chapter 5. You, you need to be reminded of this. This healing takes place on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders all clutch their pearls and say, oh, you can't do that. That's not right. And Jesus answers them in no ambiguous terms. Uh, chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They got it when he said it then. They, they, they knew what he was claiming. And here, so here are the dots just waiting to be connected. Jesus shows up in the temple. He begins teaching with mad skills and authority. Shouldn't that validate and, and authenticate all these claims that he's been making about himself? This should be the big light bulb moment for them. And they say, aha! But no. They can't see. They can't discern. Now, why is that? Well, it's because they haven't heard this sermon. Right? They haven't seen point two in the outline. They haven't had these priorities of discernment 
that you're getting right now. Now, these aren't comprehensive. This text isn't the final word on how to be a a discerning person. But uh, these are good priorities. They're not going to help you in every situation that you face. They certainly will help you in the most important thing that you need to discern, and that is who is Jesus and, and what did he do and what does that mean to me. But I think that they'll also be helpful to us as followers of Jesus as well. In growing as followers, as disciples of Jesus. So five things that I saw bubble up from this text as it relates to discernment. Priority one, we've got to prioritize God's way over human understanding. It didn't make sense to those at the temple that day that someone who didn't have the official rabbinical training could teach so well according to everything that they understood to be true, rabbis had to get their training from another rabbi. They had to go to rabbi school. That's how it worked. So in this first priority, there has always got to be room in our discernment for God to do something that defies, for God to do something that's bigger and beyond our human understanding. Our fallen, finite, limited way of seeing and understanding the way things work. Y'all, we've got to remember there's an ultimate source of authority, and it ain't us. Um, through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, the Lord is, is telling us, My thoughts, not your thoughts. My ways, <laughs> not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have to prioritize God's ways and and his prerogative to be God above our own understanding. Proverbs 3. Who who of us doesn't know these verses in Proverbs 3, right? Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. Now, that doesn't mean that we jettison all rational and logical thought, right? We don't check our brains at the door, any of that. Because very often, life does work out according to the way that we've seen it work out before. But we have to hold on to that understanding loosely. We've got to hold it with an open hand, not clinging tightly. And it can only be this way because this is the way I understand it. No, we hold it loosely. And we say, Lord, if if you want to do something different than what I understand, you're God and you can do that. Priority two. We've got to prioritize obedience over acquiring knowledge. Now, what in the world does that mean? Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, He will know. He will discern. Right, so so under what circumstances will he know? Under what circumstances will we discern? If it is our will to do God's will, if your desire is to obey, to, to act upon what you're seeking to know, then you'll know. You want to just know some facts? 
You want to just add to your theological arsenal so you might win a few debates, show how smart you are, then you're not going to know. To know, to discern, that happens when you desire to apply the knowledge you seek, when you want to act on it. I want to know this, Lord. Please help me discern this. Please help me understand this. That I might bring you glory by obeying you in it. Then you'll know. You're well on your way to discernment. Now, we Presbyterians, we tend to know a lot of stuff. We read a lot of books. We've got good theology. But what are we doing with it? Are we storing it away? Is it sealed up for safekeeping? What are we doing with all that we know? Are we applying it? Are we walking in obedience to all that's been revealed to us? We should, we should ponder that. Now, here's the other thing that I, that I have to, have to, have to emphasize here. This verse 17. If that is your desire, if your will is to do God's will, if that's true of you, if your heart cries out, Lord, I want to obey you and glorify you, then know this. That is only true because of a miraculous working of God's intervening grace in your life. If the honest cry of your heart is one that desires to obey God's will, that means you aren't who you once were. Because friends, we've already seen back in John chapter 3, right? We used to love darkness instead of the light. We wanted nothing to do with God's will. Sign me up for the opposite of God's will. That's what I want by nature. That's who I naturally am as a result of the fall. As God's enemy, dead in my sins. So if I now desire to do his will, that's proof of his working in me. And we can't ever forget that in this equation. Priority three. As we're seeking to discern, we've got to prioritize God's glory over man's glory. So we're trying to discern, we're trying to figure it out. What, what's true? What is right? What is best? Uh, the, here's a decision I need to make. Here's um, a, a, a book that I'm thinking about reading. Should I read this book? Should I listen to this teacher or that preacher? We need to ask, does this bring glory to God? Or does it in some way bring glory to man? That's what's going on in verse 18. All right, so part of discernment, we want to know truth, not falsehood. That's the purpose of discerning. Truth is bound up in what is attached to God's glory. And Jesus modeled this for us. 
They're, they're marveling at his teaching. Oh, your teaching is so great. You think I'm great? This teaching, it's not from me. It's from the one who sent me. It's from the Father. Always seeking the glory of the Father. And as it was with Jesus, so it should become more and more of us. This becomes our chief end, right? To, to, to borrow from the catechism, right? What's the, the chief end of man? To glorify God. Uh, Isaiah 43, that, that's why we were created. We were created for his glory. And so if we want to discern his will, know for certain that God's will, the truth of God's will, is in one way or another tied up in his glory and not in the glory of another. Priority four. We have to prioritize according to the big picture. Now, I need to unpack this one a little bit. I want you to follow me. It's a little bit of what I mentioned before we uh, sang that uh, it is finished hymn. Yeah. Right. There's, there's a big picture. There's a way in which we understand all of uh, Jeremiah uh, 16, I believe it was, that, uh, that Alan was reading, um, with, with the rest of the story. That there's a way that this all fits together in one big picture. It, we have to understand that the big purpose of the law is to drive us to Christ. Right? The, the law doesn't give us right standing with God. Only Christ can do that. And so what Jesus is doing here that is so disruptive is he's cutting the legs out from under the religious leader's source of identity and security. They had built their lives thinking that if they crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, they'd be okay with God. And not only that, they'd be able to feel superior to everybody else around them. Right? So it's a win-win. I get status with God, so they thought, and status with, with man. And so because of that, they became experts at following the law. They had even become pretty good at prioritizing Right. Which laws take precedence over which laws? Because occasionally they come into conflict. Case in point, circumcision that, that Jesus brings up. Right? You see, it almost seems he's bringing this up out of nowhere. But Jesus, of course, has a point and a method to his madness here. Because Jesus knew that there were occasions when, when there's conflicts, right? I need to obey this law if I'm going to be okay, and I've got to obey this other law too, and now they're crossing each other. What do I do now? And so, for instance, what happens when the baby boy is eight days old on the Sabbath? Hmm. Now what are we going to do? Uh, we got to circumcise him on the eighth day, because that's what it says we got to do, but it's the Sabbath, and we're not supposed to do any work, and circumcision technically is work. Uh, so which one trumps the other? Well, they decided that doing the circumcision on the eighth day took precedence. And so they routinely, by technicality, broke the one law of Sabbath observance in order to obey the other law of circumcision. They were careful law keepers. And so when Jesus in verse 19 says, none of you keep the law. <gasps> what? 
Worse than that, I know you're not keeping the law because you're planning to kill me. <gasps> what? And, and so who knows? This part of the crowd that Jesus is speaking to, maybe they're just in, in absolute denial, right? Or maybe they don't know what their religious leaders are scheming behind closed doors. Either way, what they accuse Jesus of in verse 20 you're possessed by a demon. Right? You're so paranoid. You're, you're, you're delusional. The, the only logical conclusion is, is you must be paranoid. You, you must be possessed by a demon. So may I present to you Exhibit A, the rock bottom, ground zero for a lack of discernment. You know, and it's just the absolute mercy of God that lightning bolts didn't immediately fall from the sky because of this blasphemy. But here's the thing. The plotting and planning of Jesus' death was real. And it was real because Jesus, by healing on the Sabbath as he had, y'all, this was so disorienting and disruptive for them. They couldn't handle it. For a people who had built their lives on the scrupulous observance of the law, And then for Jesus to come along and not join them in their eye-dotting and T-crossing endeavors. In fact, he had come to do something entirely different. He'd come to, to fulfill those laws. Perfectly, fully, ultimately. All the types and shadows that we sang about in that hymn about the law. Here he was, the real deal. That's that's the big picture, right? Showing that all those laws, everything written, was all about him. It was all pointing to him. And and, and this was earth-shattering to them. This is what they could not get. They could not prioritize and therefore discern rightly according to the big picture. Based on their pursuit and their understanding of the law, and it ties in, it's directly related, related to this fifth priority where we've got to prioritize the internal over the external. Don't judge by what you see on the surface, Jesus says. Verse 24, not by appearances. That's not right judgment. Right? Judge with right judgment. Well, well, what is that? So Jesus uses this dialogue. And he brings up what seems to be somewhat unconnected things, but oh, they are connected. Right? Uh, this tight connection between the Sabbath and circumcision and, and his healing of, of that man paralyzed for 38 years, all of his emphasis in these things is on the internal, not the external. Circumcision, that's not ultimately external. That's not ultimately about that little piece of flesh to be removed by human hands. Right? Read the Old Testament carefully. What's circumcision ultimately about? The work that God has to do on each of our hearts. That's what it was pointing to. That's the very thing that I mentioned mentioned earlier. If our desire is going to somehow change from loving darkness to wanting to do his will, then some major work has been done to our heart. Some major cutting has 
taken place in our hearts? What about Sabbath observance? Right? Ceasing from external, physical labor from work on a day. Is that the point? Physical rest, or is the point soul rest? Is, is the point that I get to cease from striving to be right with God? I get to cease from religious and scrupulous and meticulous eye-dotting and T-crossing and hoping that I might be okay with God. I can cease, I can rest from all of that. From seeking to earn favor and right standing before God. I get to rest because Jesus is my Sabbath rest. Because he perfectly completed, fulfilled all of it. In my stead, in my lack of ability to do it, he did it. It is finished. (laughs) Hark the voice of love and mercy shouts aloud from Calvary. It is finished. He perfectly did what we failed to do. He suffered in his flesh. He endured our punishment. He absorbed the wrath of God. That's what that propitiation word in our assurance of pardon was. He absorbed the wrath of God. And so as we seek to discern whatever the subject, but especially in what we do with Jesus, how we understand his person and his work, it is primarily an internal work that he's doing. That he is doing, not that we are doing. So much more could be said on that one. But let me briefly mention this third point on the the outline, this promise. It it just struck me well toward the end of my study. What a promise this is to claim. What an absolute promise this is to claim in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. You'll know. If your heart's been changed, if you now desire to do his will, he's not going to hide it from you. It's not the shell game where you put the ball under the shell and then... He's not doing that with his will. You will know. You will know. He wants you to be able to discern it at at every level. You'll be able to discern. You'll be able to see how his ways trump our understanding. You'll be able to see how his glory is ultimate. And the thing that brings him glory, that's the path for you to follow. You'll see how he's always pointing you back to the big picture of Christ doing in us what we could never do for ourselves. Claim that promise. Rest in that promise. Let's pray together.